0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The Olympics are upon us, and so I'm bringing you one of my favorite past episodes recorded last year at the height of the pandemic with one of the most interesting and outspoken Olympic athletes, American women's soccer star Megan Rapino. We talked about many things including the battle the U.S. team is fighting off the field to win the right to equal pay. Hello. Hey, Megan. Good to be with you. Good to see you. I'm seeing you in a whole different way, actually, because uh, your uh, signature blonde hair is not not blonde. I guess that is a reflection of the times in which we find ourselves.
1: This is... is, um COVID grow out, I'll say. And I'm scared to death to do anything by myself uh, for fear that I might just burn it all off and be left bald. So I'm, I'm rocking with natural, I guess.
0: You're also like, you would have been preparing right now. You'd be in the final throes of preparing for the Olympics. Yeah. That is not happening. Uh, first of all, how are you spending your time? And then what, what does it mean to have the Olympics postponed for you and the other athletes?
1: Oh, how am I spending my time? Um, I've actually find myself quite busy doing um, a lot of Zooms and um, IG Lives and podcasts. Um, turns out I, I uh, like being social and I think I, uh, I like kind of staying in the mix. I actually feel more rested because I'm not um, traveling and, um, you know, flying all over the country doing appearances and playing and all that. So um, found time to still do quite a bit of public stuff. but um, just trying to keep in shape as well. I mean, it, there's no way to, to train at the level you need to to be ready. So just trying to kind of stay at a baseline and um, just sort of be be thankful for, for where I am. Um, there's a lot of people who are in, you know, terrible, terrible conditions and just trying to, you know, obey the stay-at-home orders and make the best of it while I can. And in terms of the Olympics, I mean, obviously, my um, my girlfriend Sue and I both are in, in the same position. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's devastating in this way. You know, this is an opportunity. Sometimes people only get once, um, in their lifetime. There undoubtedly will be people next year, um, if the Olympic happens that they wouldn't have been there and they might've been there this year or, you know, new people might come. So it's, it's very uncertain for us, but at the same time, it just, I, I just can't help but feel it's completely pales in comparison to the current moment and what we're in and how important this moment is. So in in a way I'm kind of like, well, yeah, of course we're not going to play the Olympics. And, you know, frankly, I think the Olympics are, are in doubt next year, but um, you know, just thankful we're safe and happy and healthy.
0: Even next year, huh? I
1: mean, yeah, I mean, I I mean, I don't know, obviously, Um, you know, we we don't know, hopefully we'll, you know, stumble upon a drug therapy or um, you know, we'll have a record record time in vaccine, but Um, The more I think about it logistically, um, just bringing everybody together like that with the absence of of drug therapies or anything like that just um, seems difficult, but, um, you know, very hopeful still. But, yeah, it'll it'll be, I guess we'll see. Uh, I don't want to be in the prediction business, but we'll see.
0: I don't want to be indelicate about raising this, but you've had a long and very celebrated career and you're at an age where people begin winding their careers down. You've said you're nowhere near that point, but there's that element is there too. You you mentioned your girlfriend, Sue, sort of casually, she's a world-class future Hall of Fame basketball player and yeah. so a major athlete also at the sort of at the end of her playing career what does a time lost mean
1: that's that's something I think we're sort of grappling with um, right now and and as this pandemic unfolds and you know things pop into our head we're trying to you know figure out what it all means
0: um you know in the beginning
1: before the Olympics were postponed it was like we were very early on like of course it's going to be Canceled and what does that mean? Is it going to be postponed? So that was a little difficult. And then I think we've kind of recently started thinking, well, wow, it's only you know potentially a year away. Are we going to be ready by then? Um, I mean, it's it's just so unknown. That's not a, a comfortable feeling. As a as an athlete, you try to you know control everything that you can, and certainly you want to be able to go out the way that you want to, and um, not sort of be like, pushed out by a pandemic. But um, yeah. It's a, it's a very strange time for an athlete. Our, you know, our whole lives in many regards and many aspects are so planned out for so long, even working out right now, I'm like, I need to work out cause I need to stay fit. But I'm like, why we're not playing this <laughs> summer most likely, but I'm like, but well, what if we do? So it's, it's re- it's really strange to not have, um, that sort of structure around it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think if it, if it if it happens that you know we can't play sports for the rest of this year or a number of years or whatever it may be, um, you know the situation will be what it is, and I think we'll be at peace with that. But I, I think we're definitely both hoping um, to be able to play in in this Olympics, and we'll you know likely be the the last Olympics um, for for both of us. Maybe maybe not for me. I might try to hang on, but likely. <laughs>
0: you know the um you you mentioned that you you've discovered you're really social which is a really weird thing i mean <laughs> yeah. i think we're all figuring this out uh so we're we're all socializing in these little boxes on zoom yeah and yet it does draw you you know uh, people i haven't heard from in a long time say hey let's let's have a zoom cocktail let's have a beer on zoom and people are but i'll tell you one thing that that is hard when you're stuck at home if you're a sports freak as i am and many people are is no games and and we don't know and we don't know in terms of professional sports including professional women's soccer when that is going to happen and that's a whole different set of issues because you got a bunch of players who and we'll talk more about pay later on but who don't get paid very much the clubs themselves operate on margins so that's a big uncertainty as well as when teams are going to play in and what it's going to look like
1: very uncertain. Um, it, I mean, it's, you know, for all athletes, of course, um, it's difficult. But, you know, if you're talking about the, an NBA player versus, you know, a WNBA player or an MLS player even versus a an NWSL player, the financial situations and realities are, are much different for both the structure of the league in each club and then down onto the player. Um, as of right now, I think all of the, um, the non-national team players in the NWSL are being Paid their salary. They had just started preseason when this hit, so um, they were protected in that sense. Um, the national team is still playing, but without you know any games or opportunity for bonus or playing, um, you know the reality is a little bit different. Um, I mean, I think it's, You know, unfortunately, we're going to be hit really hard. Uh, we don't have the the reserves that the NBA has. I mean, the NBA is talking about you know the. I think they instituted the force majeure on their players, which takes 20 or 25% of their salary. Well, you know, if you're making $50 million, it's really, (laughs) if you're making $1 million, it's, you're still fine. So, um, I'm, I'm concerned about that for sure. I'm not really sure what, as we get deeper into the summer and, you know, are we going to have a season or not? I'm not really sure about the, you know, financial future of the leagues. Hopefully we can ride this out and, um, you know be able to to come back strong next year whenever uh, we're able to but it, it's definitely a big worry for the female leagues around the country and the world frankly
0: yeah no i there's so there's, there's nothing but uncertainty yeah. about all of this and that is really uncomfortable but most uncomfortable if your livelihood has been lost or is in jeopardy i want to talk to you about your amazing story your life uh, journey from uh, Redding, California. Tell me about growing up in your small town in Northern California.
1: You know, what? it's funny. I never thought about it ever um, until you know I left it and out of college, and even quite a bit out of college. It seemed you know totally normal to me, and I think by by all you know standards, is pretty normal. Grew up in a a great family. Um, I'm a twin, and we're the youngest of of six kids, so there was plenty happening in the household, um, you know, both my parents, uh, blue collar workers, my dad works in construction, my mom's a waitress. Um, you know, they grew up, you know, driving us all over the, the, the North state and in California, just in general playing soccer. Um, but I didn't really realize until after, and I became, you know, much more liberal and, uh, realized, oh, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't grow up in a, in a blue area or in a blue family per se, but you know, all the, the same sort of values of uh, you know, treating one another fairly and um, taking care of one another and sort of shirt off your back kind of uh, values. That's, that's how I grew up. So I think it's, I don't know if people don't know my whole story and they just kind of look at me and think, you know, I probably grew up in like a hippie commune in San Francisco <laughs> or something. <laughs> but turns out I grew up, uh, you know, in Trump country.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, I think your town voted overwhelmingly for him. Overwhelmingly. Yes, definitely. Yeah. You mentioned that your folks drove you all over Northern California. You played basketball. You were on the track team. You did not play soccer in high school. You played for a club that was from the Bay Area two hours from where you lived. Your mom, who worked six days a week, would spend her days off taking you and your sister to play soccer. First of all, why did you do that? Why, Why didn't you play for your school? Why did you join this club? And secondly... How hard was it for you as someone who wasn't affluent, who didn't come from a well-to-do family, uh which probably wasn't the norm on the club team that you played on?
1: Yeah, I mean we we ended up going to Sacramento and playing on that team out of Elk Grove because there was no um, you know, competitive team at that level in our um uh, in our town. So, earlier on when we were maybe 10 and 11. There was, you know, different teams that that came about and we played competitively, which allowed us to go and be seen um, in Sacramento and beyond. But um, kind of once everyone was getting into high school, um, you know, the other players on the team weren't going to continue on playing soccer. So that's why we, you know, eventually went and played in, in Sacramento it was really the only option to play at the highest level for us. And then it's interesting. It, it's almost like you know, we lived in Reading, and, um, you know, coming out of Reading, I always claim it, and we have this, like, you know, soccer star coming out of Reading, but we never really played there <laughs> very often. And in high school, we wanted to play basketball, and soccer and basketball were in the same season, uh, which happened to be the winter season, so I was like, I can either play outside in the rain, in the cold, all the time, or maybe I'll <laughs> just take a break and keep myself balanced and... um you know, we wanted to, to play basketball. We love it still to this day. Uh, we, both, we both love it. So that was kind of the, the choice there to, to get out and um, do a little something different.
0: Your brother, Brian, it was five years older than you. And you've credited him with introducing you to soccer, you and, and your sister, Rachel, to soccer. Mm-hmm. But his life took a different turn uh, than yours. And, and that's obviously been impactful on you. What, what happened with him?
1: Oh, um, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think what what happens with you know probably ninety nine percent of people that get um, mixed up with drugs or opioids eventually and um, heroin eventually. I think he was you know a popular kid in school. He wasn't you know he wasn't withdrawn or um, depressed or anything. He was very social, and um, I think it started off as a social thing for him. But you know, quickly, probably whereas most kids you know try it through school whatever he got caught at school um with drugs and with paraphernalia. So immediately sort of put into the system and then from there he just, you know, kept using drugs and kept getting caught and, you know, eventually out of juvenile and into county and then into the state prisons and then eventually into federal prisons. Um and and really a, a lifelong struggle.
0: What about for you? He was a role model for you.
1: Yeah. No, it it was it was very, very difficult at that time. I think you know, we I think he first got in trouble and I was um, 10 years old, so he was 15 years old, um, not really understanding quite uh, what was what totally was going on, but my parents always told us in very frank terms what was happening, so I'm very thankful for that. It was never something that was kind of kept secret. Um, I mean, it was so hard, to, you know, to not only see your brother who you look up to, and still to this day, I, you know, love him so much, and, and you know, I'm so thankful that uh, we had, you know, the relationship that we had and that we still have um, but going through that as as such a young kid and seeing your parents upset and then seeing him in and out of prison and going through all the sort of high school years of being angry with him and pissed at him, why can't you just you know stop or you're hurting us? And then you know understanding more about addiction and you know particularly you know opioid addiction and heroin addiction, how difficult that is and um, you know how the disease just grabs you. And then later in life, understanding more so the criminal justices. And now it's like...
0: Did he get treatment? Did he have the opportunity for treatment?
1: I mean, there was, there was bouts of treatment, yeah, in different, um, you know, in different areas or different stints that he had. Um, but it was more so on the context of, you know, do this and then you won't go to prison. But it's, you know, that's, that's not really um, you know, the most effective way, <laughs> I don't think, to keep yeah. people from using drugs is threatening them to go to prison or to send them to prison for long periods of time, which I actually feel like, you know, once he was in prison he got caught up in, in a lot of other things that that really shaped the rest of his life in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, you, you've been outspoken lately. This is obviously this debate has come to the fore. We also have this tragedy right now of people who are in prison who don't necessarily have to be in prison, who are now more exposed to the COVID-19 virus. But you've been outspoken on this prison reform issue, obviously informed by his experience. Had he been diverted to therapy and treatment rather than prison, his life might have taken a different path.
1: I believe it would have. Yeah, I I really do. I mean, someone who's 15, 16 years old, um, you know, even into his his early 20s to to have his route instead of go through intense, you know, therapy. And maybe that means a a trade school, but therapy along the way and counseling and help um, to be thrown into, you know, a federal prison system to be, you know, in Susanville or Pelican Bay or whatever it may be um, for Really, the problem at the root of it is drugs. It just makes no sense to me. First of all, we're filling. first of all, <laughs> you know, our, our streets are being filled to the max with pills. I mean, we, we're all, we're seeing it all now, obviously, with the opioid companies um, and the prescription drugs and just how devastating that was and how much knowledge these drug companies had that, A, it was addictive and B, exactly what they were doing. They were pumping, you know, the, the famous town in, um, you know, West Virginia that had, you know. Uh, 30,000 pills per person or whatever it was. So there's that all happening at the same time. And then, you know, you're putting someone into the federal prison system at such such a young age. And when they get out, what kind of job are they supposed to get? You can't get a job if you have a felony. No one wants to hire you. You're, you know, sort of now the gap between the life skills is increasing for you. And so now, you know, it's it's really difficult. The easiest thing is to, you know, go back into prison and then that's the people that you know and you're you're really just kind of in this loop that is really difficult to get out. You know, our prison systems are packed full of people who really just have, have drug have drug issues. They're they're not violent criminals and um, it's just yeah, that I mean that's it's obviously a very complicated issue. We go on for hours about it. But um, it's just so sad to see how many people have been caught up in it. And I think a lot of people's, you know, perception of it is that you know, drug addicts are bad people and, you know, bad people do bad things. And it's just, that's just not the reality of it at all.
0: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You were in the crowd In 1999, the women's national team beat Brazil in in the uh, uh, World Cup semifinal at Stanford in your neck of the woods. When you were sitting there watching Mia Hamm and the rest of that team, did you say to yourself, I'm going to be that person someday?
1: I think I probably thought I really want to be that person. (laughs) I'm not sure I quite understood the path or that there was a path. I'm not sure there totally was a path for me then. think I was yeah 13 or 14 um but I yeah I definitely remember being like this is the most incredible live thing I've ever been to um and just seeing you know not only the the passion on the field but um with all of the spectators and and wondering I think to myself is this something I certainly want to do it this looks like the most amazing performance I could ever be a part of um but is there is there a way forward to that I think I was probably still a little a little shy to be even be thinking that at that point
0: now your sister was a player too your twins um, she never achieved exactly the same level of success as you did she did well you guys went to college together and so on um, was that ever a source of tension between the two of you
1: you know I don't feel like it really was um, she was far better at basically everything than me (laughs) until like midway through junior year in high school. And then it kind of like switched a little bit. But we both, you know, went and played soccer at the University of Portland on a full ride scholarship. So we were both accomplished in our own right. But um, I think because, you know, we were, you know, she was so much better for all those years. And then we kind of like evened out. And, um, you know, I pulled ahead after college. It, It was never this competitiveness against each other. I think we've always been each other's um biggest fans and and wanting the best for each other, and I think it was clear that my passion really was in in sports and in soccer, and her passion wasn't wasn't quite there for it like it was with mine.
0: One of the things that happened at the University of Portland is you came out. you both came out. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that and tell me about uh, the experience of going back and talking to your folks about that. Mm-hmm.
1: It was interesting because we actually went to school in different semesters. I took the first semester off, so it would have been like the fall semester. Um, to play in a Youth World Championship. So Rach went ahead to college. I got there in the January semester. Um, and so we both kind of came to it um, on our own and then sort of figured out that it was happening at the same time and kind of talked about it. I actually, I think in an effort to make it better for Rachel, but in hindsight this probably wasn't my place, I actually outed both Rachel and I at the same time to my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and She was like, that is not your thing to tell. And I was like, I know, but... You know, I thought we could just maybe bring it all together. I thought they were like, you know, going to be totally fine about it. Took them a little, a little bit to adjust, but overall they're fine now.
0: It was, I, I read that you, you talked a little bit about that conversation and you told your mom, this is an adjustment. Mm-hmm. You use the word grieving in there. That was interesting to me that you were thinking about how she would process all of this. and And how did she receive that when you said that?
1: I think that might have come a little bit later. My mom and I are very similar. We're both very fiery. So in the moment, I think I was like, well, first of all, shocked that she didn't already know. I was like, this cannot be coming as a surprise to you (laughs) because when I first figured out, I was like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed that that, that it took me this long. Um, But then I think, you know, as the months kind of, you know, traveled on, I began to understand that you know, as a parent, you would have your hopes and your dreams for your children. It doesn't mean that you can't have those, but the picture will change a little bit. And so I think in the beginning, I was like, you're gonna, you know, be on board with this or like, hell or high water, you're out of here. <laughs> and then I kind of realized like, okay, like, what are we talking about here? There has to be, you know, some grace, not all the grace. I think that, um, you know, parents sometimes, you know, they want to, I don't know, they they sort of is like, what does this have to do with me? Or how did I fail you? And it's like, it's actually not about you at all. So I think just giving that time to sort of understand the process and and come to terms with it while still sort of pushing on some issues at the same time is is the right way to go.
0: The other thing that happened at Portland is you got hurt a lot. Yeah. You blew out your knee not once but twice. Mm -hmm. And that was a long, long convalescence. And how'd you keep from getting discouraged? How'd you keep from saying, well, maybe this isn't going to happen for me?
1: Yeah, I had to a, have a big dose of humility <laughs> for myself. I think I went in as a freshman, you know, played well as a freshman. I thought, oh, wow, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good about myself here. Um, <laughs> and then it happened, I think, you know, five or 10 games into my sophomore year. So basically all my sophomore year and junior year were out. So I think in the, in the, with the first one, you know, I was like, I'm going to get back as soon as possible, and this isn't going to keep me down, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to do things my way, yada, yada. And then the second one hit, and I was like, oh, okay, yep, I'm not in charge here. So I just kind of need to, uh, you know, give myself over to the process. And throughout it all, I never, I never doubted my love for soccer or that I wanted to come back to it. And so I think through that I realized, like, just be patient, and give yourself the time, you need to heal, because you can't speed it up. Like, you can't speed up the healing process. You can only, you know, work with it and sort of react to it. Um, but the love and the passion was always there. I mean, it was difficult not being able to to do, you know, what I was thinking I'm going to college for, obviously, getting my education. But um, really, I was focused on the soccer. Um, I think it, it tested me in those moments, but it also made me so grateful uh, for what I had and the opportunity that I had. and then. Uh, Once I was able to get back on the field with that sort of extra sense of of humility and like this, this could be taken away at any moment. I feel like it made me a better person and a better player.
0: You know, in that freshman year, I think you guys won the championship Mm -hmm. and you were undefeated and you were a big part of that. And, you know, look, it's no secret that everywhere you go, uh, your teams have done very well. Now, either you're very lucky (laughs) or, or you're 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 very good. You're obviously a gifted athlete. There are a lot of great athletes, though, but there is an element that separates sort of the people who perform at the highest level that seem more mental than physical. And I'm wondering if you've given thought to that and what it is about your makeup that has contributed so much to your success.
1: Yeah, a lot, especially as I've gotten older, I think, um, as the, you know, you're not as, as spry as you <laughs> once as you, as you once were.
0: I've learned that, yes.
1: Yeah, you're, you're just starting to learn that. <laughs> you know, it, it is the, the mental aspect that I think sets, sets people apart. I mean, of course, once you get to the very highest level, everyone is extremely gifted. I mean, it's not, you, you don't just work your way to the highest level. You have to be, you know, born with some sort of God-given, you know, talent. Um, that sort of puts you there. But then once you're there and everyone is there, um, it takes a certain, and it's not cockiness, it's not arrogance, but it takes a certain amount of self-assuredness because everybody is exceptional. And, and almost in the sense of like, other people are going to be able to do things that you can't do at the highest level, but in turn, you're the same. You can do things that other people can't do either. So it's it's kind of the combination of being absolutely sure of yourself and absolutely sure of your teammates at the same time. I think if you can get that that balance right, you know, especially in a in a team sport like we play, so many players on the field at one time, and um, you know, so much you know synchronization needs to happen. I think if you can equally trust yourself and trust your teammates and trust in your ability and their ability, then you really get to the special thing that makes teams great. Because you can have all the great greatest players that you want, but if they're not working together as a team, you never get to that higher level of play or being as a, as a group.
0: You know, ESPN is running this series about the Bulls, which Phenomenal. is close to my heart because I'm a Chicagoan. And I watched, I was there for those 13 years of Michael Jordan. Ugh. And it is absolutely true that when he was on the court, you just thought, well, we're not going to lose. He won't let us lose. Mm-hmm. And he in turn has said, well, you know, when the game is on the line. It kind of slows down for me, and I see things really well. And and it seems to me there's a difference between a, all the players are great, but the player who sort of wants to take control of the game at the time. You know, Bill Walton. I did a podcast with him, which was a trip and a half. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he yeah. uh, he he said, uh, "Hey, that's I loved it. That was fun when the game was on the line." He said that was. For me, that was fun. For a lot of guys in basketball or gals, there's a, hey, don't pass to me right now. (laughs) You know, I don't necessarily want to take that shot. You seem to have that quality. You've always played well in the big games.
1: I I mean, I love the big games. I would would trade all of the practice and everything and put me in like the most pressure cooker moment every time. Um, And it's not really about the pressure. I, I feel like it's all kind of a, a grand performance. And I, I see myself in a lot of ways as an entertainer and as a performer in this way. And so you go out and you, get, you have the, the crowd is involved and the pressure is involved and the other team is involved and your team is involved and maybe there's a championship on the line or whatever. And it's, I like all of those elements kind of interplaying with each other. Um, I think watching the, the documentary, you see that with Michael as well. He liked it all. He wanted it, all of those moments. And it was like, you know, I think he had probably gone through in his mind, if I miss the shot, you know, I miss it, I'll take I'll take the next one. But sort of being comfortable with that failure gives you the opportunity to succeed.
0: You haven't failed very much. You did, uh, you've been on losing teams, the Olympic team, you, you lost, or the World Cup team, I guess I should say. How, how do you process that, losing?
1: I mean, I feel like I'm re- very realistic with it. Almost how I approach injuries. Like, it, you know, if I get injured, it's, you know, it, it's not really m- much I can control. I can go back and sort of look at, um, you know, kind of an autopsy of what happened and get stronger in certain areas and, and hopefully prevent it. But, I mean, if you play the game long enough... Um, you know, and hopefully you're successful enough, you get in enough of those positions, you'd be, you would be extremely lucky to win them all. Um, and sometimes the other team just honestly plays better. I look back at, you know, Japan winning the World Cup in 2011, um, and then you take a bigger look at it, the whole story, the tsunami had hit the year before, um, A sort of national rallying cry that they had, and, you know, them coming back and winning in the, in the late moments. It's still heartbreaking. I still feel like we should have won that. But I don't know, it's kind of like, what are you going to do? Like, you can't go back. You're not going to rewind history. So I, I try to take, you know, the, all of the good with with the losses and just think like, wow, I've had an opportunity to play in three straight World Cup finals. And I've played, you know, I've never won an NWL championship, but I've played in two finals and we had two amazing seasons. And, um, you know, just try to learn from all of that. But it's like, it's it's all kind of part of it. I don't get too stuck on... The losses. I feel that I'm very fortunate to be able to play it on on all these championship teams.
0: You say you think of it as entertaining. You're, you know, you you've you've talked about this. Your flamboyance is <laughs> is is kind of a signature. I mean, not very many people have a signature crowd move uh, named after them like the <laughs> Rapino. Uh, Your uh, w- as you do, and you've said that people react differently to women athletes who are flamboyant, who play to the crowd, uh, than they do to male athletes who do the same.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, we look back at, uh, I mean, Michael Jordan is, is a perfect example. I feel like this is probably where I get a lot of it. I grew up um, glued to the screen watching uh, the Bulls. I had, you know, a life-size cutout and all these posters of Jordan. And he had this, this insane ability to, like, dagger your heart and then, like, do one of these, you know, or, like, <laughs> yeah. give you a wink or tell you he's going to whoop your ass and then, like, <laughs> do it with this sort of yeah. smile. And I just feel like men have the, the space to have multiple things happening at one time, whereas I think women don't always have that space. So you can be a killer, you can be a shit talker, and you can have a smirk, and you can be an entertainer, and you can be great, and you can say it. It's like all those things are possible with men, whereas I feel like women, it's a little bit more like, okay, she's going to work really hard and we're going to inspire the next generation. It's all about inspiring the next generation and being a role model and all those things. But it's also like, I'm also great at what <laughs> I do. And I also want to have fun. And I also you know want to be able to poke jabs and you know entertain the media and sort of have, have the whole circus going on. I feel like we need to allow our women more space to just be themselves and make it a little bit more entertaining.
0: Yeah, man, and I and I got to tell you, the people who are watching enjoy watching you have fun. I mean, it's fun to watch a great athlete have fun. Yeah. You, as you point out, you lost the World Cup in two thousand and eleven to Japan. You came back and you had a chance to avenge that loss in the Olympics in two thousand and twelve. Before those Olympics, you made the decision that you were going to come out publicly. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that and how that impacted on you.
1: It honestly just started to feel a little weird that I wasn't out. Uh, you know, out in my normal life, friends and family. Um, but it, it was kind of one of those things, like, are you are you omitting things or are you changing your answers? Or are you, you know, using certain pronouns to avoid things? And it, it just started to feel disingenuous for me. So there was that part of it personally. Um, and then, you know, I think like, you know, the gay rights argument um, and movement was more so starting on, you know, legalizing marriage and Um, that had become sort of more popular and and broad topic. I think I was sort of dipping my toe more so into politics and and getting involved in that. And it just felt like, this is the right time. And I also think people were like, oh, you know, you did it right before the Olympics to like make a splash. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not going to do it in the <laughs> you know, back page of a nothing newspaper where nobody's <laughs> going to see it. What's the point of that? You know, so it's kind of like, yeah, I do I do want to make an impact. Even this year when people say, oh, you're leveraging the moment. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm leveraging the moment. What's the whole point of everything? Unless everybody's seen it. Right. So it was kind of one of those things. It just felt like the right time. And I felt like it was a uh, you know, the, the, the right step for me to come out and say, especially leading into the Olympics, which was supposed to be all about unity and, you know, everyone competing at their best. And I just feel like if I'm not competing as my full self, then there's something missing.
0: How, uh, what kind of reaction did you get from particularly young people, gay, young women? And then I want to talk to you about men and men athletes.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, David's so, so positive Uh, to this day. I mean, it's been, you know, a number of years, um, And still to this day, kids come up to me, um, you know, parents come up to me, people my age, people much older than me, um, you know, just saying how impactful it was on their life, just to, to have more people in different sectors of our society and of our culture that are not only out in saying it, but then not having it be the only thing that's talked about. It's like, yes, I am a gay professional athlete, but I think I've gotten to the point now, you don't always have to put gay in there, but it's very clear that I am gay and it's sort of in the room all the time, so then it breaks down stereotypes and it becomes more normalized. So I think you know that's been sort of the gift that has kept on giving this whole time is just realizing how important it is, even just if one person comes out you you might just reach that one person, and for me, that just keeps happening it's 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 truly amazing
0: so I mentioned male athletes. you know that as a just as a statistical fact that there are a lot of gay men. In athletics Mm -hmm. as there are everywhere else. And yet you see very few coming out. And I'm wondering if male athletes have actually come to you at all to talk to you about that.
1: Not that I can think of that, that that aren't out yet. Um, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated issue. I think a lot of people focus on the fact that no male athletes are out and they say, you know, they need to come forward and show that bravery. But for me, I think that the organizations and the teams and the leagues and, you know, the sort of structures around it clearly aren't making it so that those players feel safe. You know, it's like Michael Sam came out in the NFL and he just didn't have a team anymore. Now, we can debate the merits of whether he was good enough to play, but I think that sends a pretty strong signal to other players and whether that's, you know, not just locker room talk, but from an institutional standpoint of some of these teams, I don't think they're really going above and beyond to make it clear to not only the players, but to the media and the staff and all of the players in the locker room and everyone in the organization that you will be safe and you will be protected and we will stand with you when you do this. Not like, okay, when you come out, now we'll show the resources. I think it sort of needs to be signaled prior to that. And I think just the, the stereotype with with gay men and with you know athletics, it's like, if you're an athlete and you're a man, you're macho. If you're gay and you're a man, you're somehow feminine. I mean, I, I can't believe that we're still fe- feeling that way because it's. That's. I think we're past that, but or should be. Yeah. Or should be. A lot of these, you know, athletes, they feel it. They they can't take the risk. You know, they have their financial future and their careers hanging in the balance, and, and maybe they just feel more comfortable. Unfortunately, staying in the closet. It's very sad.
0: You spent a couple of years playing in France, the uh, professional league folded after the Olympics in 2012. You didn't have a team to come back to. You got an offer from the best team in France. You spent a couple of years living there. Did that give you any kind of a different perspective on America, on life, on was, how formative were those years that you spent there?
1: Very. I, I loved my time in France. Um, I think, interestingly, I thought, you know, I'm thinking France and it's like so open and, you know, so like free loving. I actually found that it was much more conservative than I thought. And maybe that was more in the sports world. Um, but and they thought I was like the craziest thing that had ever <laughs> happened. I don't know if it's like. They sort of have this like collective self-conscious. I talk about this all the time. If they would just like let loose a little bit more, <laughs> then and maybe it's it's in the context of sports, but I feel like if if you guys could just loosen up a little bit, then like everything would be a little bit better. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a sort of and I didn't speak French very well. I wasn't like fluent or anything. I mean, I would try. I would you know speak French in a store or whatever, get just get answered back in English, and I was kind of like, well, that's fine. I tried. You appreciated it. I know you speak English. <laughs> so it was, it was an interesting time. It, it got a little lonely towards the end. Um, I spent, yeah, I think a year and a half there. So got a little lonely towards the end. Um, so it was nice to be able to come home, but, um, uh, living in another country, I would recommend to everyone if you have the opportunity just to be out of your comfort zone that much, that often, uh, you can't help but grow up a little bit.
0: And did you get a sense of how the world sees America when you were over there?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, they think we're loud and they think we're, we're sort of arrogant. And I was like, well, you're not totally wrong, but, uh, (laughs) I think there's much more permission to be yourself here. Um, and to be different here. I think that we, you know, allow ourselves that freedom a little bit more. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the stereotypes too are, are wrong, you know, it's just what they see on TV, um, you know, much like what we see on TV. So I, I think that, that, sort of speaks to being able to live in a different place or go to a different place, see other people, when it's like there's really no right or wrong for the most part. Um, it's just, you know, different cultures and, and what people are comfortable with and anything we see as different is just sort of automatically kind of brushed up against.
0: We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of The Axe Files. So a lot of things happened in 2016. You went to the Olympics. You met Sue. You blew out a knee uh, in that period again, this time the right one. And speaking of knees, you also, in the fall of that year, took one. And you took one uh, because uh, of what Colin Kaepernick had done. That was kind of a transformative experience. I mean, that you said you were dipping your toe into politics and activism. That was a full immersion in politics and activism. And, and the reaction was not entirely positive on the part of the soccer authorities and so on. Tell me about that period, because it, it sounds as if you were sort of blackballed for making the stand that you made.
1: I mean, it was a, a, a period in time that completely changed my life um, for the better, in, in my opinion, when I'm so thankful for. I mean, Colin Cabernet completely changed my life, Black Lives Matter. Um, Just that sort of movement, and I think as an athlete, standing up for yourself, using your platform in that way. There's so many amazing things that that come with being in a society, really, that glorifies famous people and athletes and all of that. There's so many positives that come from it, and I feel like I found the balance between all the positives and actually doing something with it. no, it was not looked upon favorably by a lot of people. Um, I mean, I don't know if it was an actual black ball, but I, I don't think I ever put the jersey on or made a roster again until um, the rule was made by uh, the I think it was the board of directors and, and the president of U.S. soccer that you had to stand. Um, I mean, sort of immediately their um, response, I think the, after it was the night of the first game that I did it for the national team, uh, while playing for the national team, it was, you know, you should feel honored and privileged to, you know, pull on the jersey as if, like, that's the only thing that matters. And I'm like, it's, you know, of course I feel honored and privileged, but part of that is, you know, being able to speak my mind. And also, I pull on this jersey for, for everyone, and I think this flag drapes on certain people different than it drapes on other people. So I think, you know, going through that process, and I, I naively, I think I I thought in the moment it's an opportunity to support Colin, but maybe I can bring another subset of people into the conversation who, you know, maybe wouldn't listen to Colin, but maybe um, would listen to me. And I I don't, I'm not sure I (laughs) I had that effect on on people. People were very um, upset and mad, but I think it actually, you know, it, it did start a conversation in a wider group of people, but I think it also, you know, put a highlight on, you know, some of the, criticism that Colin was getting, you know, I think that, you know, saying that he was anti-military or that I was anti-military, anti-America in any way. I think that, you know, a lot of the criticism, um, you know, they sort of got themselves on that one.
0: Your hometown didn't react very well to that. You're your mom uh, has worked in the same place for years and years and years. They had a bunch of your sports memorabilia up. They they took your memorabilia down. Yeah, they did. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, as we pointed out, at that very moment, they were going 65% for Trump. He was the guy who really pushed this issue. Um, how did you resolve this with your folks?
1: A lot of conversations um, around this. And I, I you know, am, am so thankful for the relationship that we have because you know, and being able to be so open with each other because it did put a lot on them. You know, I wasn't in reading having to, you know, defend myself or to defend my actions or to even be able to speak about them. You know, it was my mom who was just trying to go about doing her job and people coming into the restaurant mad or with snarky comments or being rude, um, you know, at at some of the nicer points. So I feel like it did open a lot of people's eyes up to a a different part of the conversation and, and even just being willing to have this conversation because now someone that they know and love and who has grown up around them and who's been, you know, a staple in their workplace and their family, um, you know, she's saying these things, okay, maybe we trust her a little bit more. So how can, how can we start to understand this a little bit better? And, um, you know, we don't agree on, on everything. I still think they probably wish I could have found a, a different way to do it, but, um, there is no different way. If I would have done something different, it would have, you know, people would have been upset about that as well. So I think just the ability to have that conversation.
0: You said your dad said something that I found really moving, which is that he's a veteran and that he fought for the right of Americans to express themselves, which is, you know, to my view, exactly right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, you know, something that I still feel strongly, you know, to this day it was never obviously an, an anti military, but we we have to give people the the option and the ability and to safeguard them when they want to speak their mind, especially if they're you know speaking their mind for a subset of people who have historically been you know discriminated against and i don 't think anyone can deny um, you know the the racial injustice and um, you know, disparities that have been, that have been put on people in this country. So
0: we're seeing some of them in real, in real time right now.
1: We are very much
0: in terms of who has been most deeply affected by COVID. Yeah,
1: yeah it's really sad. And I think for, for people to understand the, the, the bigger picture, it's not that, you know, your life has been easy and this le- person's life has been hard. It's not that simple. You know, sometimes two people struggle, but, um, You know, there there are certain people that, you know, based on historically in our country and, uh, you know, laws that have been made and everything passed down that um, there's there's no denying that we that we have a, a racial issue in this country.
0: You had a hell of a year last year. You guys won the World Cup. You took in just about every award that one can win in soccer and in professional sports. You were the Sports Illustrated uh, Athlete of the Year, only the fourth time ever that a woman in 66 years uh, won that award. You also, you had a a couple of other forays into public debate, and, f- and one of them was very personal to women everywhere, and that is the pay equity issue with soccer. This has been bubbling up for years, but uh, you guys filed suit to try and get paid equally for what you do. It was a propitious time because everybody in the world was watching the U.S. women's soccer team, and yet you guys are paid in a very, very disparate way from men. One measure was professional men, $263,000 uh, for 20 exhibition matches a year, women, 99000 And there are a series of measures like this. And U.S. soccer, in response, issued a really offensive legal brief in which they talked about women being essentially not the physical equal of men and a whole bunch of pejoratives that must have riled the hell out of you
1: it's been riling the hell out of us i think something interesting about you know those those horrible comments that might have been the first time that the public had had heard those comments or that we had you know seen those comments um, you know, directly related to the lawsuit in a legal brief, but um, if not the exact word, certainly the exact sentiment is what we have been feeling all along. I think it shows up in our paychecks. I think it shows up in our mediations. I think it shows up in our bargaining sessions that we go through and just sort of the general um, dialogue and discourse that happens between the Women's National Team and the Federation. So to you know, for them to take what I thought was another big step forward, I mean, this is, you're actually using this as an argument in the public. Like, you know this is going to be public. You know people are going to see this um, was, was so disappointing. I mean, this is an organization charged with, you know, the development of soccer in the country for everybody. And so to signal to not only the boys that they are just innately better, but to the girls that they are innately lesser, was just, I mean, it was it was stupid. First of all, um, you know, if you're trying to win this lawsuit, it was it was not a good step, and it just I think really showed how deep that sentiment goes. That they were willing and comfortable to put that in a public briefing
0: and call it indisputable science.
1: And call it indisputable science. It was just, yeah. it was outrageous, is what it was.
0: Yeah. So tell me where it is now the last I saw you were going to some sort of mediation
1: yeah so we we um, tried mediation in the fall last fall um, that that did not go spectacular um, clearly we don't have a we don't have a settlement um, we're not going into mediation now I mean of course settlement talks are ongoing always when you're in a lawsuit
0: you've asked for 66 million dollars in in damages
1: yeah thereabouts thereabouts um, we feel like you know not only the the two World Cups but you know years of of discrimination um pay discrimination in our wages and contracts as i've said for a long time i always continue to say it they're the only you know federation that we can have we're the only team that they can have we're going to be tied together forever so i'm always hopeful that there's a way that we can work through this but i i really do believe that there needs to be a major paradigm shift in in th- in how they think about the women's team and how they value the women's team, you know, and how they value the men's team. And
0: in fairness, the men's team hasn't been very good.
1: No, no, they, they have not been very, they've been successful. Um, But yeah, now on the world stage, they haven't, they haven't quite performed, I think the way they want to. But I think in order to honestly have the paradigm shift that we need, there needs to be a clearing of the house. I don't think that you can have all, you know, a lot of the same people that have, Overseen a lot of these decisions and been there for a long time, um, you know, unless they all sort of have a come to Jesus moment.
0: You also made some news before the World Cup when you were asked whether you would um, go to the White House if you won the World Cup. And you said, I'm not going to the fucking White House. Needless to say, that got some attention,
1: got picked up.
0: <laughs> it did. Including by the president himself, yeah. who um despite his uh, you know, thick skin, uh, <laughs> felt the need to uh to, to respond to that. And he said, Stop talking and win, which you went out and did. how did your team react when you said that?
1: You know, it's so interesting. I, I feel like I still to this day don't have that like gut feeling like, oh, I did something wrong. Like the president just, you know, came at me on Twitter. <laughs>
0: That's a big group of people, my friend. You're in a large community.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I got a lot, of, a lot of people with me in that. Um, I mean, I think because, you know, of the lack of seriousness that is that he takes with the presidency and, uh, you know, with his words, I think everyone was like, oh, my gosh, this is insane. Like, the president is is coming at you. But um, I think because I didn't have that, like, sinking feeling, I think the team sort of took the signal from me. And we were it almost sort of brought us together closer. Everyone was like, oh my God, you're taking down the president. This is insane. He's having like a total meltdown on Twitter about you. So it was kind of a funny thing. Um, and then obviously we were you know, able to go on And when, and then the the silence was deafening. I still haven't gotten my invitation.
0: Yes, I'm sure you're sitting by your mailbox waiting for it. You've also become much more forward-leaning in terms of politics with a kind of capital P. You endorsed Elizabeth Warren for president. Tell me why you endorsed her. And I know you're doing a thing with Vice President Biden maybe in a few minutes here. Yeah,
1: yeah, right after this.
0: Tell me about your uh, evolution here.
1: Um. I mean, I think that's a perfect way to put it It has been an evolution. I think as I've, you know, sort of waged more into uh, this sort of political landscape, I really enjoy it and I I like it. Um, I'm interested in politics. I think that, um, you know, getting younger people to understand that whether you're engaging with politics or not, it's engaging with you. So you might as well get involved. I mean, we're seeing that firsthand now. How important is not only the president, but you know, everyone in his cabinet and we're seeing the governors and the mayors and the local official, everybody I think is really starting to understand just how important government is and how I hope people see that we have the ability to shape it. And so I think part of why I'm so into, I'm just interested personally, I want to understand it better, but I also want people my age and people like me who I think tend to say, uh, I don't want to make it political, I'm like, well, that's not even a question. It is political. Whether you walk on the street and, you know, hit a stop sign or, you know, you don't have health care, whatever it is, I I want younger people to understand that it's engaging with you. So, like, how do we make it cool? How do we make it interesting? And I think for me as someone who has a platform, how do I, you know, engage in it and how do I at least lend that platform? Uh, whether that be a candidate or groups or whatever it is, to get more people involved. And with Elizabeth Warren, I mean, I loved her policies. I thought they were great. I think that she's proven um, to be very deaf in the political landscape um, with the Obama administration and all her work on the Consumer Protections Bill and how she looks out for people. I think she has this really sort of genuine, smart, but she's such a bulldog. Um, and I, I was kind of battling, do I do I get in early or do I get in late? Because what if you get in and then your candidate doesn't make all this happen? But I think the more people are engaged, like it's okay. It's okay that Elizabeth Warren's my was my first choice, and she's out now. And now I'm going to be, you know, full board with Vice President Joe Biden, and you know, throwing my support because I think ultimately it's the policies that I'm geeked out about. It's it's what's actually going to happen and affect people. On a day-to-day basis, that's going to have the most impact.
0: You can make a little pitch to Biden for a warrant on the ticket while you're uh, with him today.
1: I might make a pitch for myself.
0: Yeah. Well, what? About, <laughs> hey, what about that? <laughs> no, I'm you're kidding. almost of. You're almost of the appropriate age. Hey, yeah, I know. Right. I gotta. I gotta. I gotta ask you about that because I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you, and you know, I'm I, I worked on 150 campaigns, and and so when I hear someone who is as powerful as you are and Expressing yourself and is passionate about bringing about change. It's a natural question. I mean, I know you're going to play until your mid (laughs) forties, based on what I see. But um, is that something that you'd ever even consider?
1: I don't know. I've I've been asked this a lot lately. Um, I don't know. I will certainly be very involved in politics in whatever way that is. I'm I'm not sure the the area I can be most impactful yet. I say this a lot. I think everybody has a responsibility to make the world a better place in whatever way they can do so and be most impactful in. So if you're a lawyer, you should, you know, do pro bono hours. If you're me, you should do, you know, IG Lives and Zooms with with people. Um, So I think I'm still kind of trying to figure out where exactly I can be most impactful. Um, I feel totally unqualified to be any sort of elected official, even though, you know, 2016 notwithstanding, normally you have to have some sort of, um, you know, extensive resume i guess that's sort of out the window but
0: i think that's changed
1: (laughs) i think that's changed maybe not for the better (laughs) but i think that has changed um but yeah i'm not totally closing the door but um you'll have to be my campaign manager if that happens
0: well you know what there are very few people who i would consider that for but uh let's talk let's talk offline megan rapino it's so it's so great to be with you and um so inspiring to watch you do your thing and I appreciate your investment in the world not just in your sport so thanks so much for being with us
1: oh thank you so much this is wonderful I'll have to come back
0: okay I hope so great to see you you too bye 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 thank you for listening to the Axe Files brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio the executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz the show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Koop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.